This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we heard to talk about in this episode include... Clue Storage. The Machine and Welcome to It. Asian Action Cinema 101. And Conspiracy Italian Style. The Unknown Army's role-playing game is kickstarting for a new edition right now. And Atlas Games needs your help to make it the greatest new edition of Unknown Armies it can possibly be. Unknown Armies is an occult RPG about broken people conspiring to fix the world. As obsessive denizens of the supernatural underground, you scheme to bend reality before reality bends you. Find out how far you'll go to get what you want. Battle forces fighting tooth and nail to reshape the world into something you'll despise. Master or be mastered by shock gauges, the game's mechanical spine. Each PC can suffer emotional trauma in areas like helplessness, violence, or the unnatural. Any of these can harden you or break you. The occult and unnatural in Unknown Armies are like a secret world that Tim Powers and James Elroy might conspire to create. Your obsessions and sacrifices define reality, but only if you're willing to risk it all. What would you risk to change the world? Your friends? Your family? Your sanity? Your life? Magic finds a way to ask the very most from you until you change the world or are left with nothing. Unknown Armies was created by Greg Stolze and John Tynes. Originally released in 1998, it became an instant classic. Now comes a new edition more ambitious than any other with meaty changes to the Unknown Army's cosmos, substantial revision to the rules of play, keyboard curling updates for the internet age, shudder before the fervid majesty of its prestige format, a three-book set with all the awesome stretch goals and add-ons you've come to expect. But Greg, John, and Atlas Games need your help to make this new edition happen. Search Kickstarter for Unknown Armies. Or follow the link at atlas-games.com. Back Unknown Armies today. And change your reality. Change everyone's reality. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin, Samwise Kreider asks Ken and Robin, can you recommend some techniques or tools to help investigators keep track of the clues they uncover in Gumshoe? Robin, can you? Yes. Oh, thank goodness. Otherwise, this would have been such a short segment. We, we don't ask Ken and Robin questions that Ken and Robin can't answer. That's, yes. that's not how question answering uh, operates. And these, of course, apply not just to Gumshoe, but to any investigative game. Uh, Gumshoe, of course, specializes more in investigation than a lot of other games do and gives you more information to sort through because it never deprives you of uh, the information you need to solve the case. So uh, I guess the first question is, what kind of format do the players want to use if they want to organize information? The typical one, of course, is just one person scratches down a bunch of notes and then they may be able to go back and review and see what happened, especially if you have sort of a multi-episode arc. But uh, if you want something that's genuinely useful in moving the players toward a, the next step of the mystery and eventually solving it, you may need to break out your whiteboard, your corkboard with index cards, or perhaps even an electronic equivalent of your whiteboard that you can either... If you're playing online, that's probably the main interface. You don't have the room full of people. You just have the whiteboard that you're looking at. And, and that becomes, I think, more important to gather information if you're playing online because there's 
it's harder to get info through the player interface. Um, and uh, so, but even in person, you know, I guess theoretically you could project uh, a whiteboard app uh, onto uh, your TV using Chromecast or some sort of other similar app or, uh, or, or dongle, I guess, as it were. Um, and so then it becomes a matter of making sure that what you're putting up on that board is not more confusing than having no board at all. <laughs> because if you uh, have a, a sort of a, you know, the cliche in the movies is the person has a crazy cork board with all the thread lines between all the things on the cork board. That's supposed to mean that you're nuts, not that you're figuring <laughs> anything out. Well, um, except in The Wire, they have uh, the board with the string, and that means they are figuring something out. That's and that's right. why we put, or we, me, I personally, put the adversary map into Knights Black Agents to reward players for keeping track of just that sort of thing so that they would have, A, they would have yet more uh, points in the economy of points, but also to encourage uh, that kind of thinking about the organization. And if you're in Nice Black Agents or possibly even another uh, gumshoe game, looking at your foes as though they are a hierarchy or an organization, figuring out where they are connected to each other and by what can be a way of getting your head around the problem, even if your problem is not necessarily a bunch of Euro trash vampires want to kill you. Right. And uh, I guess that sort of goes to the question of what is the question? What is it that you're trying to investigate? Are you trying to uh, take apart an organization as you are with The Wire or in Knights Black Agents? Are you trying to determine which of any number of possible suspects committed a murder? Are you trying to find out what is the nature of the alien entity down at the bottom of the space mine? And all of those imply perhaps a different organization of how you want to uh, list your clues. So the common thread, though, is uh, some sort of notation on the board of what is the big question we're trying to answer? Because it's uh, that would seem to be something that would be obvious. But in fact, as players start to talk to one another and discuss and argue and speculate, you can kind of get lost on what it is that you're trying to do and what your end point you're trying to move towards. So I would say that if you're creating any sort of display that everybody is looking at, make sure that you're, you have a space on it where the question goes. And that enables you to refine the question as you gather more information, because you might, through the course of the investigation, discover that it's not really about what is the nature of the alien at the bottom of the space mine, but who is responsible for the sabotage that attracted the alien to the space mine in the first place? So that sometimes a the, the bigger mystery shifts over time, and that will be also true in like an Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu, or the, the question of the episode may alter. So have a space where that question goes. What else do we want on our uh, imagined uh, whiteboard, Ken? Uh, I think that you probably want a indication, um, and you can organize it the same way that you organize that we, the designers organize the, or the GM organizes the adventure, which is scene by scene. So every scene in Gumshoe provides you with a core clue or provides you with some actionable Intel, right? So your handy guide can be what did we get out of this scene? So every scene that you've been in, uh, you would write down maybe who you met, maybe what uh, you attempted to investigate in Ray, the space pit, whatever. But you, once you've changed scenes, you know that you did it after getting a clue. So 
this runs the risk of, I think, over mechanizing the lived experience of playing the game, because normally those things sort of drop away as you fall into the comfortable arms of Western narrative tradition. But, you know, whoever the note, uh, the note taker is, is often going to wind up being a little bit outside anyway, uh, just because that's the nature of taking notes as opposed to remembering things. And so writing down the, the, the thing that you found out as you transit between scenes, that would be a, um, uh, that, that would be a, a, a mnemonic. I haven't written anything down, what did we learn? And you you just write that down. And often, you only have to write one thing down for that note to then spark uh, inspirational memory when you go back and you look at it. Oh, right. We learned that he was left-handed, but we also, I remember in that scene, found out that that girl was actually working for the uh, the time traveler. And so we need to go back and, and see if that time traveler is up to anything. And maybe, you know, every time you get a, a new uh, data element, um, uh, a, a faction that might be involved, maybe you, you organize it the other way. So you write down, and this is a good for, you know, suspects in a murder. You write them down as you learn about their existence. So was it time travelers? Was it Cthulhu? Was it, uh, aliens? Was it, uh, Nazis? Who, what? And then after you've got each thing that might have done it, you write down under that the relevant clues and the relevant information that you've gathered. So that might be a way to organize it uh, more as a problem to be analyzed than as a uh, bald narrative that you have uh, gone through. And so you can look at it as uh, what do we know about this guy? What do we know about this place? What do we know about this thing? And as you encounter those things, you just write the information that you learn underneath them and you don't have to bother where did I learn it or when did I learn it? You just are compiling information like little mini dossiers of each suspect or each uh, major NPC or each um, uh, possible faction that's acting in the scene or in the story. The number one thing that trips up uh, players when they're conducting an investigation and role-playing scenario is losing track of leads that they need to investigate. This can be coupled with a uh, sort of a sub-problem, which is the tendency to speculate as to what is going on before you've gathered enough information to know. And some players like throwing out a whole bunch of weird theories more than they like actually going and talking to the people they need to talk to in order to get the information. Uh, related, uh, players will often sometimes collectively blank on a lead they are reluctant to follow. And of course, any investigative scenario writer worth their um, salt and pepper is going to create scenes that add tension to the narrative. And often you will find, particularly in a modern setting, the players will go to enormous lengths to try to gather information electronically and at a distance rather than go talk to uh, other people. But talking to other people is the essence of uh, the mystery scenario. So one way to uh, avoid your tendency to blank on this players is to make a list of the open leads that you have yet to follow. Who are the people you haven't talked to yet? The places you haven't gone down into the basement of with your flashlight, uh, the, uh, areas of, uh, you know, what, what are the weird clues that you still need to investigate? So, um, I would suggest that you want to have those really prominently listed, the open questions where or the the things that point to the more information that you may forget because also a well-written mystery is not going to be completely linear 
it's going to give you an option of this scene may not have just one core clue that leads you to one other scene. It may have three core clues that lead you to three possible scenes. And so if you investigate clue A, it's easy to forget clue B and C unless you add it to your list of things to go and look at. Is there anything else that you would uh, put up on your uh, on your whiteboard, Ken? I mean, part of the problem uh, or part of the problematicity is that a good scenario has enough going on that you are caught up in it and therefore don't take notes. And your job as investigators is to be able to follow that narrative thread. And I, you can't tell someone how to keep notes, right? right. It, every person is going to be different. But one person has asked us to tell them. So. Right. One person has asked them. But I'm saying that if I give a specific technique that says, you know, uh, you know, write down everything the GM, you know, says that's going to work for some people. And I've seen people do it, but most people will be drowned in it. Other people, um, uh, will wind up writing down. So the first and most important thing is figure out how it is you're actually comfortable taking notes. If you are, um, uh, how you, how you did it in, in that, uh, one class you really liked in college or whatever, and then do that. Right. Um, so, Go back to habits that you already have and simply apply them to the game to the extent that you can without losing narrative immersion. Because I think that by and large, you'd rather be playing than spectating the game and the danger of two complete notes. I guess this is a question, the premise answer to the question. Uh, the danger of two complete notes is that you wind up doing that instead of playing. Now, everyone has fun differently and many people enjoy role playing games often as a as a uh, somewhat interactive spectator sport. And those people can probably take notes all day and, and be uh, fully invested or as fully invested as they were going to be regardless, but don't feel like, Oh God, it's my job to keep notes. It's your job to enjoy the game and play it. And it's the group's collective job to make that enjoyable experience somewhat resemble a story. Uh, even if it's an emergent narrative after the fact, but the, but, but as far as, you know, saying you have to keep notes in this way, not this way, um, I, I, uh, I, I would remind us that we, that, that we can't say that. Right. Um, most note takers take too many notes and when they need to go back and find the salient thing, can't find it because they've just written down everything. And so part of the secret to note taking both in a lecture hall and, uh, in an investigative role playing scenario is to pre edit and jot down just the little reminders to, the things that appear relevant. The, the danger of that is that you don't notice that the relevant thing and you write down all the irrelevant things. But that's the thing that happens to real police officers when they're investigating real cases. Uh, one way to sort of turn that on its head is the idea of the GM-guided whiteboard or note display. So, for example, in the upcoming Gumshoe one-to-one, the uh, scenarios that I've written at least for the L.A. P.I. noir character Dex Raymond all come with or will come with maps of the characters and you reveal uh, using uh, Roll20 or some other uh, tool the characters as the player encounters them. And so they can, uh, even just seeing the characters and seeing kind of them arranged in a bit of a relationship is enough, I think, to kind of trigger uh, memories of who's who and who I haven't talked to. And you could extend that to uh, an investigation that isn't so much about figuring out what has gone on between a web of people, but, you know, the aforementioned space mine example. You could still have a GM map of little 
uh, symbols and cards that appear either physically tacking them to a cork board or again in a virtual space like a drop mark or whatever that appear that are just sort of mnemonics to remind you of the, the places that you've been. So, uh, and by doing that, you are kind of guiding the players a little to say, Hey, this thing is relevant because I it has an icon it. or a token <laughs> or a cord, but this other little detail where you went and talked to the guy at the space uh, gas station, it doesn't have a card. So guess what? That's a little, uh, extra meta clue that enables you to know to ignore that thing. But since, uh, running investigations with imaginary characters in an imaginary space can be hard. I would think most of the time uh, that's actually the GM being helpful rather than the GM leading the players by the nose. Yeah, um, and as you play with a given GM, you'll get a sixth sense for what that GM is 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 leaning on and what the GM is not leaning on. And if you organize it by uh, specific encounters, uh, which is, I guess, the, the general term, and whether that's a location, that's a person... That's a organization. It's a, a magic item, maybe. It's information at the library. Information at the library, uh, which you might write down under library, or you might write down under history of the town, depending on how you felt like doing it. Um, an encounter is going to be uh, providing you something. And if you just write one word, you know, the name of the encounter, and then one word that's a key word, that may be enough, right, the, to spark that memory train that we've been talking about. So, you know, try not to make the one word sweaty or something unless that really does turn out to have been a uh, a core piece of information or it's how you remember the the uh, the, the GMC not by their name. Uh, you just remember that the GM described them as sweaty. So it's yeah. like, oh, sweaty guy said such and such. Uh, that might be uh, valuable. But it, you, you provide a, a signifier and a signified, right? An identifier and a thing that you are attaching to that identifier. And if you go one to one, you almost can't. Uh, get too confused by it because I mean you may be missing uh, some of the the other possible trails and the GM should ideally be reinforcing the the core clues uh, throughout anyway. But that that's when at the end you can always just say uh, I'm going to use criminology uh, to examine our our case notes and make sure that we've covered all the relevant bases and then look at the GM really hard. And the GM says, Oh, well, according to your brilliant detective mind, you know that somehow you've forgotten to talk to aunt Selma and she may have information. Right. And, and finally, if you want to strip it way down, which in fact is what I would recommend, uh, you have two things on your whiteboard. You have the, uh, what is the big question and what is our list of open leads? And uh, other than that, uh, you can just ask the uh, GM to tell you who the name of the sweaty guy is or to remind you of uh, what the uh, thing it was that they uh, the do- what's on the document that we found two scenes ago. Well, your characters have that document. The GM can just tell you again. Mm-hmm. So uh, it may, in fact, be the answer to just as the answer to how to take notes in a lecture hall is take them sparingly. Uh, the answer here also may also be just focus on those couple of things and don't let yourself get drowned in the minutiae that you can rely on the uh, GM to remind you. And uh, uh, hopefully the GM's memory, if they're making up as they go along, is solid enough to uh, be able to recall that because uh, the GM, if they're making up as, as it goes along, had better have pretty good notes too to do an investigative scenario. And I think we have now thoroughly investigated this question. And even taken notes on it. And taken notes. Uh, and can now rely on uh, having solved that mystery and head on to whatever mysterious new hut lays on the next side of this commercial. 
The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for you, the home listener. Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent, or turned by Edom, or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, Ken? Unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational, collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check! And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft, annotated by the MI6. And the director's handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters, are both available at the Pelgrane website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin, it's theirs. The presence of bunting, the sound of fanfares, and the ubiquitous ballots being stuffed tell us that we've once more entered the electoral arena that is the politics hut. And this time around, uh, Patreon backer Adam McDonald has a politics hut question, uh, particularly for Ken, and that's about the nature of the machine, the political organization that uh, ran and perhaps still runs uh, Chicago and many other big American uh, cities, and he's uh, basically uh, Adam is looking for a 101. We've talked about this before, but I don't think we've just sort of drilled into what what the concept is in general. So, uh, what is the machine? A conspiracy, cult, corporation, self-aware, self-perpetuating, free entity? How does it survive if it's so fractious and equivocal? Ken, if you're going to talk to an alien who had just arrived on our planet or possibly a person from another country who wanted to know about the Chicago machine and perhaps other machines in general, where would you start? Um, you start with the fundamental ecology of the political machine. A political machine is a organization or an organism, depending on how fancy you want to be, that exists to transfer uh, political power into money and the mechanism by which it transfers political power into money, as opposed to the way that a straight up government does it by taxing you to death is by organizing enough votes to win elections. And those votes can just be within a ward. They can be within a precinct. They can be within a whole city, which is the general unit of the machine. Although there have been political machines in American history that have covered the whole state or as is the case in some states, you only have to have a machine that can run, for example, Boston or uh, Chicago, and you can pretty much drag the rest of the state kicking and screaming along behind you, regardless of what they want. 
So the fundamental ecology of it is that the central boss or the central organization, depending, has a tight core of campaign workers uh, or other uh, sort of assistant organizations. Those might be criminal. They might be uh, ethnic loyal because uh, many, many machines in America are based on ethnic loyalty, uh, or they might be a beautiful mixture of the two. And those uh, organizations and workers their job is to go out and get a bunch of people to vote the way that the boss tells them to vote. And assuming you can get a majority of the people in your uh, jurisdiction to vote that way, then you can demand from the uh, titular heads of government, uh, you can demand patronage and favors that you can then use to reward your political uh, operatives to get them to bring out the next batch of voters. And if the, uh, underlying city is prosperous enough, and if the machine is dexterous enough in distributing rewards, it becomes a self-perpetuating device. Uh, the Tammany Hall machine in New York, which was founded by Aaron Burr, basically, um, ran until, in a lot of ways, it, it ran well into the 1890s. I mean, it ran about a, a century or, or longer. Um, and then probably you can argue that it, uh, kept going as the sort of Irish Italian machine in New York up until the sixties when it was finally, uh, broken up, not so much by anything that it did, but just by the changing demographic qualities of the city and the, uh, inability of white fusion politicians to attract black and Hispanic votes, thus causing the sort of uh, discord in New York politics that opened the way for, uh, the sort of technocrat tradition of, uh, Giuliani and Bloomberg to, to wind up running New York. In Chicago, the political machine was the one created by the Democratic Party as a response basically to getting beaten by the Republicans all the time. And, uh, it, it sort of was forged under that, uh, lash. And eventually a number of local Ward machines joined together to become a super machine and, uh, got a, ironically, a, ref, uh, uh, on a reform ticket, a, uh, Democratic mayor elected and have never given up power. And that machine is the one that basically, uh, the dailies either co-opted or perfected, depending on how you want to define it, and has run Chicago with one or two minor interruptions since the 1930s. Although Chicago had, uh, arguably, a little bit of a machine before that. It was a more wide open electoral town. Kansas City had the Prendergast machine, but all of those machines basically uh, focus on a boss. The boss has a political organization. Uh, that organization's job is to get voters. Those voters uh, provide the city government with power and often the state government and sometimes the federal government as the daily machine, of course, famously got Kennedy elected. Uh, and so therefore can call in favors. Those favors can be turned into rewards for the organization and ideally for the voters. So whether it's as crude as uh, the, the old um, uh, uh, voting machines in Baltimore in the 19th century used to just give out a, a pint of whiskey with every vote. Whiskey was essential to politics in the 19th century. And, and is still not unessential today. Um, and would sometimes give out money uh, as a straight up reward for voting. More often that money would go to the ward healer whose job is to recruit uh, area bums uh, to, to go up or to bribe election commissioners to certify that people who did not exist or had been dead for decades had voted uh, loyally. Um, the old line that uh, uh, when I die, I want to be buried in Chicago so I can remain active in Democratic Party politics <laughs> is um, uh, not untrue even today. And so the machine is, you know, it, 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 it sees a need and, and fulfills it. And so the, the question 
of how it lasts if it's so fractious is it's better than its competition, the same way that a corporation or a nation lasts. Uh, nations and uh, indeed organisms are fractious and equivocal, but as long as they're better at it than the guy who wants to take their niche, they'll keep on keeping on. Right. And it's, it's fractious because it's essentially a one party democracy within a broader two party or more, more party democracy system so that in order to achieve power in a town uh, that's locked down by a machine, you have to rise within that machine exactly, and become the next boss. Now, am I hearing that the boss in the classic model is usually not an elected official, but a behind-the-throne uh, sort, or... Is that just sort of depends because obviously the daily was mayor. So, right. Yeah. Um, this is because most political scientists live on the East Coast and most East Coast political bosses were borderline criminal figures like Boss Tweed, as opposed to uh, noble, upstanding civic servants like the dailies. So you can have kind of both ways. And the machine requires a mayor. It requires a, a governor. It requires someone to. Uh, under the cover of legality, uh, pilfer public monies or rewards and, and provide them. Although, uh, beautifully, the, uh, the distinction between graft, honest graft and dishonest graft is one that used to be maintained in the old school machines. Um, uh, although again, under, under examination, it fades pretty rapidly. So what, what was the putative difference? The putative difference is if, uh, the city needs, let, let, let's say the city needs a, uh, a bridge, right? Um, Honest graft is buying land where you know the bridge is going to go before you announce where the bridge is going to go. Then you sell the land that is now super expensive because it's convenient to that bridge and keep the profits or distribute it amongst your machine or whatever you want to do with it. Dishonest graft is buying the land and then saying, we're going to put a bridge there. See? It's all about... Did we actually need that bridge? And in a way, I mean, that's still, I mean, if you look at, uh, for example, virtually all light rail in America can be looked at as a history of conspiracy between real estate developers and political machines. That's true in Portland. It's true in Chicago. It's almost certainly true in Boston. Light rail development is basically a way to shower money down on a given uh, few blocks of a city. And so the uh, the question of where do those stops go is not a question. It's not an answer that is automatic, except maybe the main train station or something. But it, it could go anywhere in the larger city at large. So you put those light rail stops where you want to reward a loyal voting base or where you happen to coincidentally own property. And so the you may argue one way or the other, we do, we don't need light rail, but what we absolutely don't need is that specific map. And that is always meant to reward, uh, uh, real estate developers. So that's sort of the, the, the difference in, in practice, I guess you'd say of, of dishonest and honest graft, but it all winds up being pretty dishonest graft, quite frankly. Right. And is that then what distinguishes machine politics from, uh, a more ordinary patronage system, or is machine just another word for patronage? Patronage is merely the act of rewarding your supporters once you're in power. Patronage can can be done, and in America classically was done, by elected officials, not by shadowy uh, machines and bosses. So when Andrew Jackson gets elected in a landslide in 1828, he immediately fires everyone who had been appointed by pre previous presidents and gives all those jobs to his supporters. And that was the way American democracy ran for, 
you know, give or take a hundred years, uh, we began professionalizing the civil service in America in the 1880s. And so, uh, as you can tell, before the 1880s, we had nothing but terrible politics. And after the 1880s, our politics have been great. So that must have been the difference. Um, right. The, uh, so, so patronage is, is done specifically by the government. Now, if a machine is controlling who gets to be mayor, who gets to be governor, who gets to be president, obviously they can control who gets government patronage and patronage in the modern looser sense can involve where do you put the airport? Um, uh, who gets a tax incremental district right in Chicago? Yeah. I don't know if other cities who gets have this. a military base and who gets a military district. base. Everyone, you, you get a military and base. You get you a military, get a military base. base. And so there are there are various degrees of favors and good things that you can do for constituents and for um uh, and for supporters, even without necessarily making them postmaster. And that is where patronage slowly slides into graft or rapidly in many cities. Right. <laughs> So, uh, is the distinction then that, uh, patronage is something that you do in order to gain power, where the machine is something where you gain power in order to extract money from the government? Um, patronage is simply a, a, a way to reward supporters. And that can be as honest as saying, you, but you're rewarding the supporters in order to get them to, to right, vote you, for you, you, right? Or you're rewarding the supporters in order to reward them for voting for you, right? That's right. You got them to vote for you by promising them, if I'm elected, you'll become undersecretary of commerce or whatever if you're trying to get the patronage of a relatively important figure. But the uh, machine exists to, well, exists to per perpetuate itself like most organizations, but it, it, it runs on money specifically. And if they got a political job, it's not because they desperately wanted to be um, a library commissioner. It's because that comes with a budget that you can then pass on the, the, you, in Chicago, we have something and I'm sure in other cities called ghost payrolling, where you create a city job and no one ever fills it, but the salary winds up in the coffers of the ward organization or the coffers of the machine, or you have someone's brother-in-law fill it and he kicks back three quarters of his salary to the ward organization. And that really is just a method of extracting money from uh, the government. And that is, I guess the core of a machine is something that is seen as fundamentally about getting the money from the government or from the taxpayer, as opposed to something that exists to reward supporters. So it, you, it may be just directional or it may be that it's right. two different so, practices. So it basically has a parasitic relationship to government. Yeah. I mean, fundamentally it has a person. I mean, you can go all the way hardcore libertarian and say government by definition is a parasitic relationship on the populace. And so a parasite on a parasite is a distinction without much of a difference. Right. But in the classical American political science model, a machine is a parasitic organization. Now, the fact that without a machine, some cities descend into howling ungovernability is a different question. But, um, uh, for example, Chicago during the brief interregnum, uh, when the machine was, was warring against itself, uh, or basically what the machine was doing was trying not to let black people into the machine and finally figured out it had to. Uh, but during that interregnum, the city, uh, was, it was very difficult to, to get anything done, uh, make any plans, uh, even so much as, uh, you know, sometimes in, in some cities, basically continue the functions of the city, you know, dig sewers and enforce the law. And so without a machine, there, it may be argued that it's a necessary stage in, say, uh, 19th century American big city that 
is dealing with a flood of immigrants. They have to be worked into the system somehow. The easiest way is to slot them into an ongoing political machine and use them, uh, use that as a road up to power. I think we talked right. in an earlier segment about, um, uh, uh, organized crime as a, uh, as, as a Weberian method of, of rising in, um, uh, bourgeois respectability. So, uh, basically it's a way also of, or it's positive effect is that it's purchasing unity where otherwise it would not exist. That it's right, yeah. binding groups of people who would normally be at odds uh, together by giving uh, the leaders of all of those groups uh, who may then, you know, disperse money through those communities. It's giving everybody a vested interest in the status quo. And that's the classic way that the, uh, that the post-interregnum Chicago machine handle itself is after the Harold Washington um, uh, uh, mayoralty, uh, when the machine recaptured uh, the city after that, they realized that they had to bring in African-Americans, they had to bring in Hispanics, and every uh, uh, power base in the city basically got dealt into the new game by the machine. And so by co-opting enough of the Mexican community and enough of the African-American community and rewarding certain leaders with, uh, well, in some cases, by sending them to Congress, which seems a little rough on the rest of us, but there you go. They were able to deal them in and create the sort of unity in Chicago that prevailed under uh, Mayor Daley II and is now being strained because Rahm does not have the connections within the city that the Daleys do, and also because uh, the city is running out of money. And so it's much harder to run a machine in a city that is actually uh, not economically a net producer, because then you start having to actually short fundamental city services to provide rewards for the machine. And that's where the system starts to break down. Right. Once the effect of the skimming becomes apparent, it's, you know, if there's a great transit system that uh, rewards people who uh, get on it and, and uh, you know, is valuable infrastructure for the city, that is less visible that a bunch of people made out like bandits putting it up than if there uh, isn't enough economic activity in the city for that piece of infrastructure to help. And then once you start to look at who uh, got the money, it's it's a much uh, a tougher thing to keep everybody uh, on board with that. Um, so is there any sort of closing thoughts that uh, you might want to uh, lay on people as to understanding what the difference between a, a city with machine politics and uh, one that does not have machine politics? How, how would the two... Uh, you arrive in a, a new city, you're in a Starling City for the first time, or Hub City, and uh, how do you determine whether it has a machine or not? Well, I think in, in all cities except Metropolis, you can be pretty sure that there's a machine because they have to produce <laughs> some sort of deformed supervillain. But uh, I think that the way that you can generally tell if a city has a machine is, is there competition between political parties? If there's not competition between political parties, almost certainly you're dealing with a machine situation because the natural structure of American politics produces an in-party and an out-party, and the out-party gravitates to whoever isn't the in-party. So even in, uh, in in American cities like, say, Los Angeles, which is mostly run by newspapermen, it turned yeah, out, so we're and, one and the same. real estate guys <laughs> didn't really have a fundamental machine. You, yes, uh, didn't really have a, a machine qua machine. You see a lot of competition between Republicans and Democrats, or you did until the statewide Republican Party sawed off its own arm. But uh, 
But, but if you look and you, and you say, oh, that's odd. The same political party has won every election for a century. You may suspect you're in a city with a machine. Right. Uh, and the way that you can tell you're in a podcast with four segments is that after our second segment, we play a commercial and then we have a third segment. What did Isaac Newton discover in an alternate 1666? He discovered the way that alchemical truths can be... That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not biologically related. But related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagelm. Ask for Ask. Ask Fagalm by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This show also made possible by generous patrons precisely like... Christopher O'Neill. Stephen Hammond. Todd W. Olson, who reports that his son remains psychically unharmed by long car rides listening to this show. Bill Sundwall. And Fred Kish. Sing rousing songs of sponsorship alongside this merry band by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com slash Ken and Robin. The rattle of the projector, the crunch of popcorn, and the sound of people being enthusiastically dismembered on screen tell us we've entered an exciting, even action-y version of the Cinema Hut. And today's Cinema Hut, beloved friend of the show, Hal Mangold, wants to know how to get started with Asian action cinema. And I don't think... Hal wants to get started. I'm pretty sure no. Hal is roughly familiar, but... Hal is a mensch in, in several ways. Yes. Uh, the most relevant ways here is that uh, he's a... First of all, he's a patron uh, as well as a friend of the show. Mm -hmm. And he is asking a question that he knows perfectly well the answer to because he laid out my filmography of Asian action movies not once but twice in both uh, uh, The Back of Feng Shui 2 and in Blowing Up the Movies, my companion book from Atlas Games, which is all about uh, looking at action cinema, particularly Asian action cinema, and uh, finding ways to incorporate the uh, methods uh, used in those films into your uh, role-playing. And with both books, there's an identical filmography in the back. So uh, Hal is asking this question not for, for his benefit, but for your benefit, uh, d dear listener, and possibly other listeners that Hal wants to uh, funnel our way. So, And again, you may be familiar with Asian action cinema, as we certainly hope you are, but 
uh, as with anything, having sort of a, a, a primer or a set of pillars can't be a bad thing. Even if you've seen a hundred Westerns, knowing which are the 10 key Westerns is still useful information to you. Same thing with Asian action cinema. So before we beat the premise to death and then throw it through a wall, uh, Robin, uh, start us off then with the golden age, the great era of Asian action cinema, which I would say has to begin with what enter the dragon or is it, does it begin in the eighties when we start seeing more of the Hong Kong films really blow up to my mind, the golden age of Hong Kong cinema starts in the eighties uh, with the zoo warriors of the magic mountain by Choi Hawk. There of course is a previous ton of uh, films from uh, Shaw brothers and there are other uh, independent uh, uh, kind of Kung Fu films, but the, shape of that cinema really changes with uh, Troy Hawk and new production methods and the uh, introduction of full-on wire foo. Um, and my affection is for the uh, late 80s, early 90s uh, period of films dominated by uh, Jackie Chan and Jet Li and by uh, directors like uh, Choi Hawk and John Woo. So uh, for me, the golden age is uh, just the period right before I started to work on uh, Feng Shui. And, and I think it is the period when a lot of us of a certain age uh, began to have uh, Hong Kong cinema way more available in America than it was before. I mean, it used to be, like you say, that you'd see the Shaw, the Shaw Brothers maybe on UHF TV, but the 80s is when we started seeing a lot of, uh, I mean, the video cassette revolution meant that there was suddenly a lot more to pick from on the shelves. And then also there was a... Uh, it, that created a market, which then could be fed by art house cinemas and student cinemas. So I saw lots and lots of Hong Kong films at doc films on the university of Chicago campus. And I imagine many other people who were in college or grad school in the late eighties, early nineties, they had the same experience of suddenly going to university and there on some screen in some function room, or if you were lucky, a full on theater, there was the things of the glory and beauty of which you had only dreamed of when you were watching um, uh, 36 Chamber of Shaolin on Channel 43, right? Right. And the the Shaw Brothers stuff, I mean, they did all kinds of different films. They did romantic comedies. They did uh, kooky spy thrillers in the 60s and stuff. But the, the stuff that came uh, west was all that one uh, sort of chop sake uh, genre. And there are definitely gems within that, but it's not where I would sit people down and say, here's how you develop a love of Hong Kong action cinema. I would start with the following films. So you want to have a, a John Woo movie. Uh, he is the one who sort of pioneered or revived because uh, there an, there's some interesting precursor films. But uh, he, with uh, A Better Tomorrow and uh, then The Killer, uh, he refined the uh, or, or defined the uh, so-called heroic bloodshed subgenre of uh, contemporary action uh, for the 80s. So uh, some people prefer hard-boiled, uh, which is just more of a straight-up action film. It doesn't have the over-the-top uh, melodramatic emotional hook in it, but it's precisely because uh, the killer fuses crazy action with that melodramatic element that if you want to understand Asian action cinema, or uh, Hong Kong in particular, I would start you with the killer. My favorite John Woo is actually a, a bullet in the head, but it's one that you watch after uh, you've seen some of the others. Um, you also want to make sure you give your uh, person that you're schooling on these movies an example of Jackie Chan's work. There's a whole 
ton of different choices. Uh, I would go for Police Story 3 Supercop. I would go with Armor of God myself, but that's because I'm a adventurers, not a cops type guy, I guess. Yeah, uh, Armor of God is also fun. It's uh, It's got more sort of silly byplay in it. And more importantly, the uh, Police Story 3 Supercop also has Michelle Yeoh. Yes. Who well, is... It, it, I, I consider myself uh, defeated and will, 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 and will withdraw from the field. Michelle Yeoh is the is the answer. Yes, and she so- showed up at set with the dance training, and uh, a few days later was doing a stunt where she rode a motorcycle onto the back of a uh, moving bus. Because yeah. <laughs> that's how they roll in Hong Kong. Um, and so that's uh, I think a really great example of Jackie Chan, but. You know, we could have another segment that's called "Getting Started with Jackie Chan." Right, right? and we can have se- we can have sub segments of of all these of, of all these sub genres. Absolutely, right? that's, that's what a primer is all about. You exactly, gotta, you got to choose. So, moving on past Jackie Chan, regretfully, right? Uh, so, for an, uh, a flying people movie, a wuxia film of that period, I would go with uh, Chinese Ghost Story, which is a uh, sort of a supernatural, uh, magical, uh, ghosty, uh, nutty, crazy, horror-inflected, sometimes suddenly veers off into spoof. And that'll give you a good sense of the uh, sort of shifting tones of a typical Hong Kong fantasy uh, action film. I might add Swordsman to that list. Yes, Swordsman. Um, Swordsman is that the narrative of that is a little troubled. (laughs) <laughs> it's hard to follow in a way that Chinese ghost story is clearer. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, again, watch Swordsman up. But I, if we have someone we're trying to introduce, I would I would go for Chinese ghost story. All right. Um, and you also want a uh, example of the sort of 19th century martial arts action in which there's still wire work, but it's subtler. And for more, and and you also want an example of Jet Li, who is kind of closes the golden age. Right. He's the the yeah, last. Right? He's like the Titian. Uh, in the renaissance of, of Hong Kong film, right? Yes. Uh, and so uh, Once Upon a Time in China gives you the uh, a version of the Wang Fei Hung story. Uh, and so that's like, uh, you know, if you're introducing people to the Western action tradition, you want a movie with Robin Hood in it. Well, here you want a movie with Wang Fei Hung in it. And it gives you the uh, politics of the uh, uh, 19th century. And uh, it's quite an angry, uh, tough uh, sometimes harsh film in alongside its uh, martial arts action. And so I think that would give you uh, a grounding. And from there, you can go off and, you know, watch the other five movies in that series. And, uh, you know, uh, The Bodyguard, another a modern Jet Li movie, is uh, also really great. And so you can sort of start exploring out from uh, there. So that's a classic period. Um, you might prefer to start with actually the glossier, more technically polished more thematically and tonally consistent films that uh, came out around the year uh, 2000, which uh, kind of recapitulated and reshaped and made classy the influences uh, from the golden age and before that. Uh, I call that the arthouse renaissance. And these are the films that played uh, mainstream uh, theaters in the West. Uh, the most obvious one of those is Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon by Ang Lee, and that has Michelle Yeoh in it again, and Chow Yun-Fat doing what was then a rare period role for him. He's since done a lot of them. And then you have a couple of uh, Zhang Yimou movies, the renowned uh, maker of Chinese man- mainland art house movies, uh, dipped his toe uh, quite beautifully into the uh, wuxia genre with Hero, uh, which uh, is sort of uh, enigmatic and almost sort of possibly Brechtian in its politics, and also House of Flying Daggers, which is just a more straight-up, beautiful, gorgeous realization 
of all of those uh, genre tropes. And there was another little kind of fallow period after that, and now what we're seeing is a convergence. <laughs> little fallow period. Um, uh, I guess that was the sort of that, that was when they were still trying to work out a relationship between the Hong Kong cinema community and the Chinese government. After the, the handover happens in 1997, the Hong Kong cinema. It doesn't go dark, but it goes really quiet compared to what it was before. Yeah. And then the art house renaissance is very much Chinese government coming in and or Western filmmakers like Ang Lee coming in and sort of trying to see what will stick or what they can get to happen in a way. Yeah, they're they're trying to create a popular cinema on the mainland. The mainland has traditionally done sort of kind of serious, uh, sometimes beautiful, sometimes sort of slow and doer films. And now... Uh, what's really happening is a commercial demand inside China for movies for their domestic audience. That's what happens when you build a middle class, China. Watch out. Exactly. Um, and so now, uh, you know, the Chinese uh, movie audience is the largest in the world. And so they're not only a consumer of uh, Hollywood product, but they want big Hollywood style blockbusters made by Chinese directors. And it took a while to sort of fuse the two very different aesthetics of mainland state-sponsored art cinema with uh, big uh, blockbusters. And so, of course, what do you do? You import all the people from Hong Kong who have the uh, experience of creating crowd-pleasing movies but have been doing so on a shoestring budget, and you give them lots of money and actual good CGI effects and stuff. And so you get things like uh, Choi Hawk's Detective D and, and the Mystery of the Phantom Flame, which is a... Uh, not just a Wuxia film, but a detective film and uh, has all of the wildness and, and loopy qualities of his earlier flying people movies. Like there's a scene where someone fights a CGI deer, <laughs> um, but it's gorgeous looking. And even I found it moving and, uh, and has, uh, you know, some of the great classic actors uh, uh, like uh, Tony Lin Kofi and Andy Lau in the lead and Karina Lau as the Tang dynasty empress. And so, uh, if you're looking for, if you know that your person that you're introducing to Asian action cinema wants a really up-to-date, polished uh, piece of filmmaking, uh, this is the one where you start them off and introduce all of the cool. And it's got a ton of different great classic character actors. So it's like, uh, let's give Choi Hawk a lot of money and let's not interfere with him as he's so often been interfered with and let's give him a career uh, renaissance. And there's a sequel to that with a younger actor, young Detective D, uh, which is uh, also a lot of fun. Um, and uh, uh, Donnie Yen, I guess, is sort of the, although he's uh, getting a little, he's getting up there too and starting to use obvious stuntmen in his, his films. He's sort of, uh, he goes back to the classic era. Uh, he's an Iron Monkey, for example, but he's uh, the guy who can still do the action sequences now. And so uh, Ip Man is a great uh, martial arts film to check out. Uh, the sequel is also good. There's a third one just sort of hitting your uh, local uh, Chinese uh, Blu-ray store, even as we speak. And Ip Man is, and Ip, Ip Man is like a, a return uh, to action cinema without being wuxia because it's straight up martial arts, right? Yeah. It's, it's no, it has no more wuxia in it than Raging Bull does because it's a boxing movie, except it's not boxing. It's awesome right. martial arts. And very much like Raging Bull. Not that boxing is not an awesome martial art. Thank you, listeners. <laughs> story doesn't progress according to whether he wins or loses the fight. It's a drama in which he has to undertake a series of, of fights. And so it has an interesting um, structure uh, in it as well. Um, and also, finally, I would note that uh, we're not 
we've talked about uh, Chinese and Hong Kong movies so far, but Asian action movies uh, spread far beyond that. The influence of the Golden Age Hong Kong cinema has filtered uh, through uh, Japan, uh, Korea, Thailand, India, India, Indonesia. Um, I think it's a little harder to find really great examples in India that it, are really it, well It certainly is because, uh, again, they have to sort of way, figure out a way to take uh, the martial arts uh, film tradition, the Wuxia tradition, and blend it with what Indian audiences expect, which is, you know, dance numbers and emotional, uh, you're sort of going almost back around to John Woo, where they, they demand an emotional wrenching melodrama, often in a family context, as opposed to a romantic love context. And so melding the, you know, crossing those streams is just as hard for a democracy as it was for a communist uh, country. So there you go. Audiences right. are audiences. And also, uh, you can tell that their action sequences are shot really quickly and mm-hmm. put together. They're, they're, they're kind of an afterthought even when, so they're not, they're just not as well executed. I mean, it, it, again, it depends on the film, right? I mean, the doom sequence, they shoot the action, action sequences just like they shoot the dance numbers. And I think that's going to be their, their great contribution once they get, once, once they get a, a breakout action star, I suspect, but what they, they are going to be able to do those choreography in the same fashion because they've been doing superb choreographed numbers with a million people in them for decades now. They have that, that's a known technology. They just have to ramp up the set piece action number into a really great series of fluid fight scenes and they'll have it. But individual Indian films have individual good fight scenes. It's just turning them all into the sort of ongoing operatic quality that something like uh hard boiled or the killer has is, is a little harder. Right. But the one you would recommend is, is doom with, with and that's D H O O M. Yeah. And I would recommend uh, maybe doom two, which is the middle in the trilogy, because that's when they are looking at the action cinema. Doom one is much more of a heist film uh, with a weird romantic uh, uh, component to it. Doom two is very much, a, uh, it, if you had made it in Hong Kong in 1990, I would not have been surprised. I, I would have been surprised that they'd made it with so many Indians. But other than that, it's a very Hong Kong feeling story. I would say Doom 2 is, is where you want to start because there's a lot of, of, of action sequences in that as, as well. And it also get, lets you get that Bollywood sensibility, but Korea and Japan. Right. Uh, so for Japan, I would recommend, uh, uh, one of the many films of uh, Kinji Fukasaku, he did Battle Royale. He did a whole series of uh, really gritty uh, Yakuza movies in the 70s, uh, the Battles Without Honor and Humanity series. I would recommend uh, one from 71 called Sympathy for the Underdog, a, a gangster pick that has a lot of the style and themes uh, that will later show up in uh, heroic bloodshed movies as re-envisioned by John Woo. Um, for Korea, if you're just starting there, uh, this is what we're in now. This very moment is the golden age of Korean uh, cinema, uh, uh, Korean commercial cinema at any rate. Um, I would point the to such obvious titles as Old Boy by Chan Wook Park from uh, 2003, uh, a, a surreal, weird uh, vengeance a film which uh, isn't uh, full of action, but when it delivers the action, like the long hallway fight sequence yes. with the hammer. You're, you'll be like, oh, that's where Daredevil gets everything. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, and uh, I'd also point you to The Host by Jun Ho Bong, uh, which is a uh, sort of a kaiju monster movie, but it's a family engaged in action against the uh, monster, and that'll give you a, another sort of cool starting point. And from there, you can, you know, 
pay attention to Ken and Robin Consume Media or go back to previous Cinema Huts where we've talked about Korean films and uh, uh, branch out from there. So uh, that's a lot of things to sit down your uh, prospective uh, Asian cinema fan uh, with, but uh, uh, hopefully that'll get you started. Yeah, we could add uh, in Thailand, uh, Ong Bak, the Ong Bak series. Oh, yeah. And in Indonesia, the Raid series. Or you can start with Marantau, which is the uh, first movie that Iko Uwais, who's the action star of the raid, uh, was in. And so, uh, Marantau is a very straightforward martial arts movie. The raid is, uh, all that on steroids and with a lot more guns. But Marantau might be your sort of transition from, uh, from Indonesian action, uh, martial arts to Indonesian killing everyone, uh, cinema, which is, uh, they're both great, but Marantau is going to be more traditionally martial artsy. And you have a very few short months to watch all of these films if you don't know them already, so that when Rogue One comes out and has Donnie uh, Yen, uh, Wen Jiang in it, uh, you can then say, oh yeah, I know all about those guys, and you can lord it over your friends for uh, being uh, too cool to uh, not have already been uh, extremely familiar with Asian actions. And on that note, now that we've made you, uh, if you do your homework, cooler than all your friends, it's time to move to our final segment. Beneath the headlines, deep in the shadow world of international security, an elite corps of covert operatives grab up their stingrays, Kevlar vests, and M4s to seek and destroy the eldritch adversaries of the Cthulhu mythos. In Delta Green, the role-playing game, you are one of those agents. You're the one they call when unnatural horrors seep into the world. You fight to keep cosmic evil from claiming human lives and sanity. You conspire to cover it all up, so no one else must see what you've seen or learn the terrible truths you've discovered. The quick start rulebook of Delta Green Need to Know includes everything you need to play Delta Green. Complete rules for conducting investigations, overcoming crises, fighting for your life, and watching your sanity slip away. Complete rules for character creation. Six characters ready to play. At Delta Green Operation, last things last, ready for the handler, the game moderator, to introduce your team to Delta Green tonight. The physical edition of Delta Green Needs to Know also comes with a sturdy four-panel screen loaded with data to help the handler run a fast-paced, suspenseful game and sinister wraparound art to keep the players terrified. This is only the beginning. Deeper terrors can be found in Delta Green the role-playing game and its source books. Available from Arc Dream Publishing. The shadowy whisperings, the scribbled org charts on the back of diner napkins, the handbill written in curious crabbed script suggests that we've entered that most dangerous and uncertain areas of the podcast, the conspiracy corner. And here going four for four with another response to a Patreon backer in this instance, Tenant Reed, uh, we have been asked to investigate the broken, interconnected political, financial, criminal scandals of Italy in the 70s and 80s. And uh, these are so broken, interconnected, that we could do a 15-part series just on this, although I would have to certainly do a lot more homework before we did that. <laughs> uh, but we're going to at least scratch the surface. So uh, this is a uh, cool, if hard to get a handle on story, which has an actual... Uh, 
illegal Masonic Black Lodge, uh, pursuing fascism by other means. And uh, uh, I think uh, those of us in the English-speaking world, uh, the part of this story we know best is the uh, fate of uh, Vatican banker Roberto Calvi, who, uh, after leaving Italy on a short notice, was found hanged from a bridge in London with bricks in his pocket. And uh, it was ruled a suicide a couple of times, but uh, I don't know. I don't know how that story really, really goes. I don't think it's, it didn't seem so suicide to a lot of people. So, uh, Ken, is Calvi the uh, best way to uh, bring people into this story and start telling it? I, th- I think a lot of it depends on where you want to go, because as you alluded, you can go literally anywhere. And Italian politics, even under the most straightforward of administrations, so the Romans, has never been without crazy nonsense that also happens. And in the 70s and 80s, Italy has um, uh, has has hit the end of its big economic, post-war economic expansion. They've hit that same segment we talked about, the, the same question we've talked about in when machine politics go bad and the money starts running out and you have to start stiffing people to make things happen. That's when everything falls apart. And in this specific case, the everything is the uh, dominance of the Christian Democratic Party in Italy, which would basically ran the whole country like a machine. And the people who begin to get shoved out are not all communists. Many of them are the people who used to be fascists and maybe still are and are thinking, well, as long as we're not going to be Christian Democrats anymore, let's see what we can be. And these guys, we don't get to wear the uniforms anymore, but what if we <laughs> have everything got even but that better uniforms? Because we've got Masonic aprons and hoods and crazy stuff. And um, the Catholic Church banned Freemasonry straight out for a long time. And even in modern Italy, I believe it's still illegal to belong to a secret society. You can belong to a society that everyone knows exists. And so I guess if you go down and you publish, uh, we're in the Illuminati and you put it in the you know book of regulations, then you can be in the Illuminati in Italy. But right. And we know if you ban things, you just make them more popular. <laughs> Is that what we know? Really? Do we know that, Robin? <laughs> or do just you and I know that and literally no one else? Um, uh, because I'm going to say. Anyway, I go into it, of course, with the crazy Masonic organization, which was known as Propaganda Due. Propaganda was the name of the old uh, Masonic organization and propaganda due would be propaganda two electric boogaloo. And so the propaganda merely means, uh, the work or the, 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 um, uh, the propagation, the, the, the action of, of things. And but it so means that other thing too, but it also means, um, propaganda, uh, propaganda, buying, uh, buying newspapers and, uh, shifting them to your agenda mm-hmm. or owning newspapers already, uh, which is the, the, the real shortcut. Um, you begin as a newspaper of publisher and say, I think fascism is good for newspapers, which is odd. You wouldn't have thought that, but there you go. They would be not be the only newspaper, uh, operators to pursue authoritarian power, no. but, but let, let's go on. And, and, and anyway, uh, so propaganda due becomes basically a, a secret organization as a, Sort of an attempt to build what the right and middle, uh, center and right in Italy saw as a countervailing organization against the existence of the subversive faction of the Communist Party. The Italian Communist Party, of course, was openly in politics, but was shut out of power by the Christian Democrats. 
um, because they thought that having a communist country in NATO would be maybe a bridge too far even for Italy, as did America, which is where it ties in with Operation Gladio, which we have to talk about, honest to God, in another segment. We just don't have space in this one. But the notion being that if the communists have got a secret apparat moving through Italy doing uh, their will, we, the hard right, need our own secret apparat moving through Italy. And since we begin with all the millionaires, our secret apparat is going to be way more awesome than theirs. And the secret apparat, depending on who you believe and who you read and whether or not you want to tie them onto what is known as the Propaganda Due List or the P2 List that uh, got published um, after um, uh, the Propaganda Due's founder and head Licio Gelli. I don't think he, he may not have been the actual founder, but he was like the, the first great king of it. And uh, they, they put him in jail after the bank, uh, Banco Ambrosiano fell apart and the uh, police raided his lodge to find out who'd been stealing all that money from the bank. And it turned out it was him. And uh, they discovered that he was running a secret Masonic organization. So they published his membership list. And that then is like the list of donors to the committee to reelect the president or something that becomes the thing that you go back to and back to and back to. If you are anyone on the left in Italy to figure out who to blame for whatever has just gone horribly, horribly wrong. Right. When you're getting <laughs> yes. at your whiteboard, like in our first segment, <laughs> you use all of the names on that right. to start your whiteboard. And since among the people on that list are people like Silvio Berlusconi, who it turns out is indeed going to become prime minister and have all manner of exciting other uh, extracurricular activities. I would say Kel Surprise, Kel but that's Surprise. not Italian. Yes. Uh, Cello Surprise, or whatever it would be in Italy. Um, uh, Pronto Surprise, something. But, uh, but anyway, uh, Silvio Berlusconi is just one of many people on the list. And so when you go back and you reread something like Foucault's Pendulum and you say, Oh, look, there's a guy named Dio Talevi who's also on the P2 list. That means, oh, everything in Foucault's Pendulum is also a coded reference to this. This becomes the founding conspiracy, the Watergate, if Watergate was involving genuine fascists who ran the CIA, which I guess some people say it, it was, um, uh, this would be the Watergate and the Kennedy assassinations, which are the Aldo Moro kidnapping and all the other, uh, the strategy of encouraging the left to atrocities so that you can do counter atrocities and drive more people into the arms of the hard right. Um, that's, that was a big thing in Italy in the seventies, which again, we can't get to, we can't get to Aldemaro. We can't get to the red brigades. Right. We're, we're doing Umberto Echo next week. So yes. we can get some more of that stuff in everything, everything that you want, that you wind up looking at in Italy, anything's written, anything at all politically is going to come pointing back to this sort of, P2 list that's like the the all-stars. They're the Justice League. They just show up everywhere, except if the Justice League were Italian fascists and criminals. Um, but the 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 the, uh, the Lodge wound up having the heads of all the major uh intelligence organizations, domestic and foreign. So they've had to purge the 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 Italian equivalent of the CIA, I think, three times to try and clear it out of these guys, and every time they wind up, oh, you guys are still doing just the same thing as the last ones, because we're doing the same terrible job of purging the 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 CIMI, uh, which later became a different agency, as we do of trying to get the mafia out of the police force or whatever else. The 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 point being, the P two again, like a real Masonic lodge, is so interconnected and intertwined with the actual way society functions that it's really really hard to drag these guys out. So. That is sort of the... I think the comic book analogy you're looking for is Hydra. Hydra. Well, it, it's Hydra if Hydra ever got to have A-list bad guys in it. 
right? I mean, if it's like <laughs> not just Red Skull, not just Baron Strucker, but everybody, like Vulture's in Hydra, and um, uh, uh, the Rhino is in Hydra, and Electra is in Hydra, and Galactus is in Hydra. Everybody's in Hydra. Um, it's super Hydra. It's um, uh, it's really it, 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 it louder than bombs. It's bigger than noise. It's just insane the amount of stuff that gets tied in with uh, P2. And you can literally draw that line anywhere in the absolute certainty that there's probably stuff on the far side of the line that's true, but that it, it's maybe where the, the uh, concentration of true goes away. But everything that they're accused of, there's probably some basis of it, and whether or not they actually, you know, um, uh, committed the, the Aldo Moro kidnapping and then blamed the communists that might be the bridge too far, but they certainly were paying someone who was involved is, is basically how it comes down. Um, and that's, that, that is, believe it or not, the high level short look at P2. So Banco Ambrosiano goes away in, uh, 1981. And then the guy who ran it, the chairman was a guy named Roberto Calvi, who you've alluded to. And Calvi, among his other talents, was able to sell shares in Banco Ambrosiano to the Vatican. And so that's why they called him God's banker. They should call him God's uh, long con grifter. Yeah, God's uh, <laughs> swindler of, not swindler for. for yes. He's, he's funneling money out of the Vatican Bank, not funneling money into the Vatican Bank. And the Vatican don't play that. Uh, it likes it to go the other way. Uh, the mafia obviously are connected because the mafia are connected to everything in Italy and certainly every large scale opportunity for money laundering. And of course, he was a uh, a member of or connected to, I forget which, the uh, the propaganda do it. So um, uh, Calvi uh, goes missing from Rome and turns up in London, uh, hanging from Blackfriars Bridge. He's got a noose around his neck and his clothing is full of bricks and he's got uh, about 15 grand on him. So he's hanging from a bridge. His pockets are full of bricks. The natural response is he must have committed suicide. He was put his clothes full of bricks in case the rope broke and he fell into the, into the Thames below the bridge. He would still drown. He hangs himself. Problem solved. Yeah, uh, the 15 grand closed. that would weigh him down further. 15 grand is just, you know, he doesn't, doesn't really know what to do with it. He's obviously not in his right mind. He's committing suicide for goodness sake. But as it transpires, uh, forensically, they looked at his shoes and found out that he'd never climbed up on the top of the bridge, right? There's no rust. There's no paint. There's nothing on his shoes to indicate that he climbed down off the bridge to hang himself. So no, no evidence that he touched his, the bricks. So he must have gotten a chambermaid to put them in for yes, him. Yes, exactly. Um, uh, there, 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 there's all manner of, of winky stuff. In addition to the fact that when you are initiated into the Masons in many traditions and certainly in crazy Italian ones, you wear around your neck something called a cable toe to indicate that if you ever give away the secrets of the Masonic Order, they will pull the cable toe taut and strangle you to death with it. And they will also, in uh, some traditions, uh, hang you uh, at the shoreline or beneath a bridge. Blackfriars happens to be both. And of course, one of the propaganda due nicknames was the Fratineri, the Black Brotherhood, or the Black Friars. And so that would be a signal that the, um, uh, that the P2 has killed him in a Masonic, uh, murder to emphasize the importance of not, uh, running away with all of the propaganda due money. The argument that it was a mafia hit, 
uh, sort of falls apart on the theory that the mafia have never before or since gone to all that trouble to kill someone. You <laughs> you get shot in the back of the head, execution style, and yes. then maybe... maybe they don't kill somebody and do everything but write us Masons did it on him. <laughs> <Right>. Yes, <laughs> the, the 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 Masons are not the ones who will be blamed for nothing. No, the um uh, no the 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 mafia will sometimes engage in a little post facto mutilation to send a specific message, but. By and large, bricks and hanging from bridges, not their scene. So, right. and it turns out if we make it look enough like a Masonic murder, it just confuses people and they rule it suicide. As it, as it does, they do. It eventually transpires that, um, uh, you could have brought his body to the bridge on a boat because he's found at low tide, but at high tide, a boat could get up under the Blackfriars Bridge. Um, across the river from, uh, Blackfriars, of course, is the temple, or at least is visible from there. And so you have the old, uh, Templar commandery in London gazing at this hanging body for extra fun. And so you could have, uh, run him down there, uh, uh from the temple or just run him from, you know, some, uh, crummy part of, of the docklands if you, if you wanted to and, uh, and hung him while he's in a boat underneath the bridge. And that is, that explains how he gets underneath the bridge without getting stuff on his shoes. Right. And c- conveniently enough, uh, as we turn this into the uh, possibility of something for gaming, uh, this is a convenient way in for English speaking gamers to discover a, uh, Italian political conspiracy with the names changed in that, you know, they're in London. They're the investigators in London. They have this phony looking suicide in their jurisdiction. And from there, they then have to start to figure out Italian politics, which of course is a challenge even for <laughs> Italian politicians. And that enables the GM to be able to have them encounter things that slowly give them the amount of information they need as outsiders in order to continue to penetrate the case. And the reason that the they are uh, permitted by the forces that want the conspiracy unearthed to continue to operate is precisely because they are outsiders. They know that, you know, this group of Ordo Veritatis investigators based in London is not going to already be hooked in, uh, half of them bought by the, uh, by the, uh, equivalent of the P2 that you're using. And that gives you your, your premise that, uh, allows you to move, move, uh, through this an incredible labyrinth of, uh, political, uh, conspiracy. And of course you would want to, change the details and everything. So is there an English language source that you could point to people who want more than a uh, 15-minute podcast segment in order to orient themselves in this uh, incredible world of conspiracy and uh, skullduggery? Uh, there, was a, there was a documentary called God's Banker that was uh, made in the 80s right after the uh, events took place. And you can look at that. Um, if you can stand to watch Godfather Part 3, uh, it's in there as the uh, Corleones get tied in with all the craziness going on with the, with the mob in Italy. Um, so that's a, that's a road in. It shows up in the Holy Blood, Holy Grail mythology. So if you, uh, are a fan of that uh, pre-existing conspiracy, uh, you can swat up on it. I believe I'm not 110% certain, but I believe that more of that is in their book, uh, The Messianic Legacy, which came out in 1986. Uh, that was, uh, Agent Lee and Lincoln. That was the sequel to Holy Blood, Holy Grail. And again, that came out right after the Roberto Calvi murder. And that'll be already pre-mixed with additional craziness. Right. Yeah. And if you've, if you've just posited that secret Freemasons have been concealing the uh, bloodline of Jesus, uh, secret Freemason murder in the heart of London near Templar locations and 
and full of all that other wonderful stuff is like a gift from uh, above to you, uh, or at least slightly above the bridge um, to you. And so therefore, uh, they sort of run with it in the Messianic Legacy. It, I don't know how easy that is to find. Probably pretty easy because it was a it was a big uh, bestseller. Uh, but that might be another way to to go in it if you already want to tie it into one of those universal joint conspiracies with Holy Grails and aliens and um, uh, and uh, and Templars and such. Uh, well, uh, that's uh, in an episode full of uh, primers and uh, organizations of information. Uh, that is yet another primer. And I think it's time for us to uh, head on out, having uh, considered our job well done, and uh, meet you all next week for another festival of us talking about stuff. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pellegrin Press. Dice Rendezvous with Randomness. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Rank yourself among such distinguished supporters as John Kingdon, Lewis R. Evans, Joshua Hillerup, the aforementioned Samwise Kreider, and Stuart Robertson. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>